children's ministry, you can do that now as well. We just have a lot of uh, activities coming up on the church calendar, and so we're going to start putting some announcements on the front end as well. And really just want to be constant in reminding you that we're doing our best to communicate everything in one place, but we've got some things coming up. I mean, next week we've got this... Uh, this uh, chili feed on Saturday the 22nd. We've got the new member class that starts at 4.30. And uh, the following week, we have our 20th anniversary celebration and a potluck and so on and so forth. So as always, just keep plugged in with this app and kind of pay attention to what's going on here. And if you'd like to follow along today, there is a sermon outline available to you there as well. We are in Proverbs chapter 2 this morning. And one of the things that I think that we ought to ask relatively early in our series is why do so few people actually have the wisdom that is presented in the book of Proverbs? If it's just right there, right? There's been this great democratization of the DIY world. You can go on YouTube and you can figure out how to change the water pump in your car, you know? Like there's been this, 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 this uh, decentralization of what would seem to be insider knowledge so that there's a lot of things you couldn't do that now you can because the information is available to you. Well, this information in the book of Proverbs has been available to folks for 3,000 years. And I think if you looked out in the world, you might think that, well, uh, maybe we need to put it on YouTube. Something's not clicking here. For as available as wisdom is, and it really is available, James, uh, another passage that, from, from the same book that Josh read from, James tells us that God gives wisdom freely without finding fault. So you have this hyper-available thing. God gives wisdom freely without finding fault. Why isn't it, why don't we see more wise people? You know, there's this imagery in at least three places in the book of Proverbs of a lady wisdom crying out from the streets, saying to the simple, saw this last week, saying to the simple, come and I'll teach you. It's almost like God is so eager to give away wisdom that he, he sends this woman out, like a merchant woman, who's like, wisdom, get your wisdom. So why do so few people have wisdom? Well, I think the answer is, is that so few people have wisdom because while God has made it readily available, he has made it contingent upon humility. God has made his dispensation of wisdom. He will give you wisdom, but you have to be humble. And so the main theme, I think, of this chapter and of this message <coughs> is to get wisdom, you have to get over yourself. To get wisdom, you have to get over yourself. I mean, even as you think about this idea that God in his wisdom decided to personify wisdom as a woman three times in the book of Proverbs, and you kind of have to start you know, stop and ask, like, why did God do that? Why, why did he personify? It really messes with all my Trinitarian preaching, by the way. Like, this really screws with a bunch of my things. No, uh, God does that. Why did, why, did God, why did God do this? Why did he personify uh, wisdom as a woman at least three times in the book of Proverbs? And I think there are multiple levels of this. But for one, 3,000 years ago, and I think this is still true to this day, women were synonymous with the instruments of shalom. Shalom is really what people are going after in Proverbs, what they're really looking for in Proverbs. The, the aim of their wisdom, in part, is the good life. 
And so a, a, a woman 3,000 years ago was the, was the instrument of God's feeding, healing, housing, warming, like all, like a woman is an instrument of shalom and that's how the book of Proverbs ends actually because that's what Proverbs 31 is. It's, a, it's, it's biblical femininity firing on, firing on all cylinders, just throwing out shalom into the world. So that might be one reason why God allowed wisdom to be personified at least three times in the book of Proverbs as a woman. But another one is maybe running in another direction, and that is 3,000 years ago, uh, young men did not think so highly of women. And I think that's the overarching message of the book of Proverbs. If you want to get wise, you have to get over yourself. You have to be humble. You have to be humble enough to seek wisdom where it is found. And if it makes you feel like you're, it's beneath you to go to a woman and listen for wisdom, then you are not ready for wisdom, right? I think those are at least two possible reasons why that's going on. Is certainly one of the main themes of the book of Proverbs is that if you want wisdom, God gives it freely. You just can't come with your pride. You have to come with humility. And this is going to be a short message. I've got a <coughs> raging sinus infection. One of those that feels like all my teeth are about to pop out of my jaw, you know. Um, so I'll try not to preach angry this morning. I'll also try not to commit too many heresies because I feel like I'm halfway here. But this will be a relatively short message, just a simple exposition of Proverbs chapter 2. Because I think what we see here is that in order to gain wisdom, we have to come over, overcome three obstacles of, of pride. And the first one is the obstacle of know-it-allism. And the second one is the obstacle of have-it-allism. And the third one is the obstacle of above-it-allism. So um, now onto the text. What do I mean by know-it-allism? Well, look at the very first two words of Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1, which, if I'm not mistaken, are my son. Again, I'm about halfway here. My son. Well, how does this phrase, this, this title, my son, tie in with know-it-allism? Well, it's simply this. Everybody wants wisdom, but nobody wants to be called boy. <clears throat> Wisdom is gained from a position of submission, a position of subordination. Wisdom is not mostly two people exchanging knowledge sharing on a peer-to-peer -peer network. Wisdom comes mostly by sitting at someone's feet. So one of the obstacles to overcome is your desire to, to, to get wisdom is you've got to be willing to be called a son or a daughter or a disciple or a learner You've got to learn the difference, for instance, within the realm of preaching, of sitting under preaching versus sitting over preaching. There's this whole like, aspect of getting wisdom that simply means you willingly sitting at someone's feet. And that is really hard for the person sort of struck with know-it-allism. For many proud people, just the action of being a less than in a conversation means they will never acquire wisdom. They can't knowingly, overtly step into a conversation as a less than. And that's pride. And that's what I mean by know-it-allism. That's going to keep you from hearing wisdom. Because to be clear, God transmits his wisdom 
from the top down. And he does that in a way where, he doesn't do that in a way to exalt the giver of wisdom. The prideful person is constantly concerned about the people above him being proud because he's proud and he assumes that those above him are proud. But that's not how this actually works. God doesn't, God doesn't do the whole hierarchical transmission of wisdom for the purpose of making the person at the top look good. He does it just to teach us, regular people, just to chill out and be humble and trust him. And so one of the great obstacles to just like growing in wisdom is just being able to sit at someone's feet, um, to, 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 to move, remove the, 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 the charade, the charade, not that fancy, charade, it's fine. <laughs> I've been listening to Narnia at night when I fall asleep, and it's in a British accent, and I like wake up thinking I'm British every day. <laughs> But the charade of sort of a metaphysical democracy where we're all equal, it's like, that, that's not a pathway to wisdom. It's simply not. To get wisdom, you have to hear someone say to you, my son, my inferior, and be okay with that. Not inferior of equal, not inferior of worth, but inferior in this particular moment, in this particular exchange. One of the things that I think God does is essentially he causes us to sit at people's feet and those feet always stink. Meaning, or to say it more classically, he causes us to sit at people's feet so that we can see those feet are made of clay. And the reason he does that is not to make much of the man who is giving the wisdom. It's to get us to humbly trust that if we Submit to God as we submit to this person, we're submitting to God. God will take care of us. God will instruct us. God will teach us. And this is just something that is true all along. You never are too old to need a teacher. And the older you get, the more, the, the more uh, focused you should be on trying to find teachers. Because they'll tell you point blank, like, there's, a, there's a, a cliff of immaturity awaiting all of us in old age, and it is essentially when we stop seeking others to teach us things. It's, it's a cliff of immaturity, meaning we're maturing, 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 and then psh, we fall off this cliff. You know, when you see a, um, you see a five-year-old with cookie on his face, it's cute, because like five-year-olds should have cookie on their face. But when you see a 55-year-old with cookie on his face, it's not cute. Because they shouldn't. But the problem is, is that like, when you see immaturity in a young person, it's like, okay, they're immature. But when you see immaturity in an older person, it's very off-putting. It's like, well, how do, you, how do you overcome that? You keep looking to learn. You keep looking for teachers. And you keep openly engaging in situations where you come as the lesser, overtly. And you say, I want you to teach me this. Can you teach me this? So on and so forth. And literally, what you're learning, it's not, it's not the relevant piece. It's engaging in the action of humility and being willing, whether it's to fix a car, to cook something, to learn how to study the Bible, being willing to be the subordinate is so good for your soul. And it's an essential part of gaining wisdom. Uh, the second obstacle to gaining wisdom is what I've referred to as have it allism 
have it allism. Look at verses one through five. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, if you go through that, I mean, if you have a pen and like a paper Bible, you might want to do this, but you can just grab all of these words related to acquisition. Take, treasure, make your ears attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise your voice, seek it like silver, search for it. So in this passage, you've got all of these, left my microphone, in this passage, you've got all of these ideas associated, not simply with being open to hearing wisdom. That's not how Proverbs communicates this. Like, hey, if you have something you want to share with me, I'll listen. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is someone who has made the acquisition of wisdom the primary pursuit of their life. And I, th I really hope you'll hear me on this. If you were to break down all of what Proverbs has to say about pursuing wisdom, one of the things it would say is, is that it is basically a full-time job. Um, the seeking of wisdom cannot be a hobby. And what do I mean by have it allism? What I mean is this idea that people, like Americans in particular, have. It's like I'm highly passionate and devoted to 15 things. Like, well, that, that doesn't work that way. It's not, you've, you've, you've ruined the meaning of highly devoted and passionate. And it's a, there's a pride there that essentially thinks that we have this unlimited bandwidth to, pay, to give attention to multiple things and to be good at multiple things and to, to dive deeply into multiple things. And what you see related to wisdom and you see in this passage is, no, 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 how many things, like just to be honest, just like, like let the Holy Spirit remove all the pride just for a moment. He'll give it back. Just, uh, just let's, let's pull all the pride out of our hearts for a moment. And let's, just be, let's just be honest. How many things exactly in life can you take treasure, make your attentive to, incline your heart to, call out for, raise your voice for, seek it like silver and search for? How many things can you do that with? Like, the truth is, is we all do that with stuff. But we can't do that with unlimited things. So have it allism is sort of this notion that you can, um, you can, you can multitask so many other things. Like you can have... You can have kids, and you can be wealthy, and you can make sure those kids grow up in Christ, and you can do this, and you can do that, and you can do this, and you can do that. And you do that. It's like, that's pride. You just don't understand your own limitations. And when it comes to pursuing wisdom, I think the idea that we get in Proverbs is, it's a full-time job. You've got to devote yourself entirely to this. You've got to make this the point of your life. And I want to tell you, there are just so few people who have done this over 20 years, over 30 years, over 40 years, who have said, this is the thing I'm selling out for. And if it costs me promotions or advancements, and if it costs me this or that, the thing I want is I want wisdom. Now, we live in a world now where it's like, no, you, you don't have to pay for wisdom with the loss of job advancements and the loss of this and that. No, you can have it all. Okay, see you in 20 years. See you in 20 years. I was talking to a guy at the gym, and it was a very amiable conversation. I forgot to tell you about this, but this extremely wealthy guy and his wife, and they're just plowing along, just 
just both churning out, you know, 300 plus thousand a year. And uh, he's uh, a little younger than me and is, well, uh, probably 10 years younger than me, late 30s. And uh, he said, what do you, you know, after telling me all these impressive things, he's like, what do you do? And I said, I said, I laughed and I said, I'm the guy you come to when your marriage falls apart. After overworking and thinking you could have it all. And uh, he, he was like, oh, <laughs> he took it well. <laughs> I was like, what, what you're doing, if you're pursuing this life over here, this, like this guy is, you're basically trusting someone else is sacrificing so they can have wisdom enough to help you put the pieces back together that you've neglected for decades. It's like, no, you do that. You, you, you seek wisdom. Stop trying to think you can have it all. You're going to have to make sacrifices to be wise. Make the sacrifices. This is the thing. This is worth it. Um, this is, this is like, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I stay motivated to seek wisdom like this hard over a lifetime? And that brings us to our third point. And that is uh, what I've called above it allism. Look at verses six through 11. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. And what stands out here in this section is this, I think you might describe it as the defensive value of wisdom. I'm just calling it wisdom as a shield. But let's go back through the verses real quick. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of the justice, the just, guarding, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. So this idea, verse 11 too, discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. <coughs> If you ask, how does Proverbs sell wisdom? Like, what's the hook? What's the, you know, why should you want wisdom? It's a positive and negative answer. The positive answer is you'll have the good life. And we'll get more into that as we progress. The, the, the negative answer that's like a good negative is it will keep you from a lot of things. So that's what I mean by the defensive power of wisdom or wisdom as a shield. So we started this point by asking the question, how do I be so motivated to pursue wisdom this diligently for 20, 30 years? Like, how do I stay that motivated? It's like, you have to believe that you're in real danger. This is why people stop pursuing wisdom. They, in their pride, think they're above all of the potential dangers out there. So, if we're going to understand the book of Proverbs, we have to step into the presuppositions they carried, the assumptions that they carried when they wrote and heard this message. And one of the presuppositions of Proverbs is simply this. This world is hard. It will chew you up and spit you out before you ever saw it coming. Is that one of yours? Because if it's not, you will not seek wisdom. This is what I mean by above it allism. If you think that you're above being chewed up and spit out, 
You will not seek wisdom. It will be in your face. It will be right there for you. If you think because you've been a Christian, people my age, listen up. If you think you, because you've been a Christian 30 years, you won't shipwreck your faith, you're not on the path to wisdom. What exactly in the news and the events that have transpired within the Christian world over the last 10 years will give any of us assurance that we're not somehow going to flake out? Like, why would any of us think we're above any of this, right? So what's the key to seeking wisdom forever, hard, to putting up with the stinky feet of our teachers? You've got to believe that first that wisdom is a shield, and it is, and secondly, that you are in real danger. And when you stop thinking that and you think you're above all of the potential ways this could go wrong, you walk the path of the fool. So one of the ideas behind to get wisdom, you have to get over yourself, is simply this. Your eyes may tell you you live in a relatively safe world and your prideful heart may tell you that you are not susceptible to this or that way of falling. And if you believe that, there's no reason for you to seek wisdom in the way it's described here. Now look at verses 12 through 15. Uh, Keep in mind the defensive value, okay, the, the defensiveness of wisdom. Verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. All right, I want you to picture a prideful son hearing his dad say um, in verses, verses, Son, I have something to tell you. It's 22 verses. No, he's just talking, right? But I want you to imagine a son hearing his dad. His dad says, my son. And he just, dad just starts dropping wisdom. No apology. No, we're equals. No low authority. Like, hey, we're all just struggling. Nope. It's amazing how, many, how few adult parents I see talk to their children the way that Proverbs teaches us to talk to our children, which is forthrightness, authority, not authority that comes from you, but comes from the Lord. It's like, the whole book tells you how to talk to your kids. It's right here. So you're a son, but you're a prideful son. And your dad says, listen to my words. Well, already you're thinking, you're so prideful. It's like, or you're prideful and you're projecting. But prideful son, you're so prideful. It's like, listen to, dad's like, listen to my words. You're so prideful. And then he says, you know, wisdom has this, you have to seek wisdom with all of your Life, Like there's only one thing you can devote this much passion to. So it has to be wisdom. This is the, this is the thing you should seek. And uh, son's like, well, okay, maybe, whatever. And then like, I don't know why I would. And then the, the dad says, and if you do get wisdom, then God will keep you from falling in different ways. And the son's like, who said I was going to fall? And it's like, you don't know me. You only think you know me. And suddenly we are like literally on the set of Jerry Springer. Like, who said I was going to fall? I did. I know my feet smell, but keep sitting there, because I just did. That's the answer, by the way, parents. I just said this. I, who God chose before the foundation of the world to be your father, or your mother, or your teacher, or your pastor, I did. I said it. I didn't say you were going to fall. I said you could. Prideful son won't hear that. 
prideful son won't hear the warning as anything more than an indictment. So the above-it-all-ism is sort of like the way that this always ends for all of us because the Bible's full of warnings and we grow immune to the warnings and we think, surely I'm not a Pharisee or surely I could never be a Judas or surely I could never uh, abandon uh, Paul in his moment of need and love uh, for the present world and surely I could never be like a Corinthian Christian and so on. And so all of the warnings are lost on us because we have this above it all sense. And it gets worse. I mean, look at verse 16 through 19. Imagine, again, being the prideful son, and the dad says, if you seek wisdom, in verses 11 through 15, 12 through 15, if you seek wisdom, you won't be as susceptible to the deceitful speech, the perverted speech of evil men. And then in verse 16, he says, also, if you seek wisdom, son, you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Some of you have some, uh, well, I'm not sure how many of you here, but if you've ever worked with the Department of Defense or in the military or so on and so forth, there's this notion of even a 1% threat with a massive amount of fallout. So that's the 1% chance of something terrible happening. But that 1% chance, it, it, will, it will destroy, like, let's say, let's take a million people off the face of the planet. Because the consequence is so big, this 1% has to be paid attention to clearly. And so we, we get to this second place where the dad says, son, you need to seek wisdom so that the smooth words of the forbidden woman don't pull you down to the grave. And how does a prideful son respond? He thinks, I... I this is not even on my radar. There's no chance I'm going, to be, I'm going to be pulled down by the smooth speech of a seductress. And so seeking wisdom, it's like right there. It's being offered. Why, don't, why aren't more people wise? It's, it's know-it-allism. I, I am not willing to be subordinated in the position of a learner. It's have-it-allism. Wisdom's just one of many things I'm pursuing. And it's above it allism. I'm not really in danger of these things that God has chosen to write about in his book. Uh, they are not really real threats to me. It's not possible that I could love money more than Jesus or so on and so forth. And so all of these warnings are extremely, are just, honestly, they're just offensive to me. Now, I'll just tell you point blank. Uh, I've, I have committed every one of these sins. Like, I, I, I mean, I can just look back at various times of being in the position of the know-it-all or the above-it-all or the have-it-all. I just tell you point blank, this is, this is universal stuff. And I'm hoping as you hear it that you're pricked to the heart and you're not being defensive about that. Because now I want to bring you Jesus. <laughs> um, add this to like, you know, reason 100 million 43 of why I, I think Jesus is the right choice. It's the right horse to bet on, the right train to get on, like the right exit to take. Here's the idea. Know-it-allism, have-it-allism, and above-it-allism are projections of a kind of holiness. Know-it-allism is a projection of omniscience, of knowing everything. 
Have it allism is the idea that I can do everything and anything I want. It's a projection of omnipotence. And above it allism is a projection of holiness. So here's the crazy thing. We're casting all these smoke and mirrors to each other, making each other believe, hopefully even convincing ourselves that we're above it all, that we know it all, that we can have it all. And that's all, it's all lies. It's all delusions. Meanwhile, you look over here, and here's Jesus. And he really does know it all. And he really had it all, has it all. And um, he really is above it all. Like, he really is holy and has never sinned. And here's the beautiful thing that, that has a, 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 an instructive lesson for us, but also just a, a lesson or a, a message of deliverance. Jesus was the know-it-all. Like he did, he knows everything. He was the can-do-it-all. He had all power. He's the above-it-all. He, he was perfectly holy with no sin. And he surrendered all of that, at least the appearance of that at the cross. All right, so... At the cross, Jesus looks tricked, so he wasn't a know-it-all. He was outflanked and tricked and conspired against and deceived. Um, he looks powerless, and he looks guilty as, right? So all of our furious efforts to maintain what is straight up a facade, it's not real at all. It's like paper mache, but thinner than paper mache. Uh, we know it all, that we're above it all, that we can have it all. It's all just lies and nonsense. And we're working so hard to maintain it and project it out in the world. And we get super offended when someone just pokes their fat finger through the paper mache. We're like, why did you do that? That wasn't very loving. Maybe it was very loving. We're all just hyper, like trying to build this facade. And meanwhile, we see a naked Savior on a cross who had, has all of those things and willingly, what? Surrendered, did not consider them something to be grasped. But here's, so that's a beautiful message of imitation and so forth. But it's also a beautiful message of deliverance because you know what Jesus did have on the cross? He didn't have his dignity. He didn't have his clothes. What did he have? He had your pride on the cross. And here's what he did with your pride. He put it to shame. Fatal shame. He took my pride and your pride on him on the cross, and he killed it. And so there can be times when you really, if you really get honest about it, there can be times when your pride will look as if it is the thing that will never go away. It will never let go of you. You will be cursed with it forever. You will be estranged from the acquisition of wisdom because you can never get over yourself sufficiently to get wisdom. And all of that is true unless Jesus took your pride with him on him to the cross and bore God's wrath against it and died to put your pride to death. We're so scared of being put to shame. So scared of all the facades, all the fake clothing being, you know, found out. And here Jesus is. His clothing wasn't fake. His righteousness wasn't fake. His know-it-all wasn't fake. His all-power wasn't fake. It was all real. And he just, like, surrendered all of it so that he could take our disgusting, wisdom-hating pride to the cross. And so our verse for communion is a verse that I've memorized way back in my 20s when 
it became really clear to me that I wasn't going to fix myself out of the hole that I dug for my own pride. And this verse that I learned, I don't know if I still have it memorized. Today probably would not be a good day to check. Uh, Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I just say, you know, there's nothing wrong theologically with saying specifically, I and my pride have been crucified with Christ. I and my pride have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we come to the table of our crucified Lord who is also risen. And we say that the day that he died, pride's reign over us. It's totalitarian reign, like where we could do nothing. It's, it was fatally wounded. And through Christ, we can, we will, progressively become more humble and more open to the wisdom of God. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've placed your faith in his righteousness, I'd invite you to come partake of the table today.